The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transformed their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning and welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Picking Bigger Business Media. And our guest today is Jeff Tomlin. Jeff is the author of Stop Talking, Start Communicating, Counterintuitive Secrets to Success in Business and in Life. Jeff is the founder and CEO of Mouthpiece Consulting, which is a communication consulting company. He's also the president of On Demand Leadership, a leadership development company, and he's the founder and board chair of Critical Skills Nonprofit, a 501c3 public charity that's dedicated to providing communication and leadership skills training to chronically underserved populations. His writing on communication and leadership has appeared in scholarly journals, newspapers, and textbooks across the country, and also five editions of professional communication skills. Welcome to the show today, Jeff. Thanks very much, Kelly. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners. So stop talking, start communicating. What led you to write this book, and why is it so important? Well, I think the main reason I decided to write this book is that in the last 15 years, I perceive that a lot of the tools that are remarkable at connecting us to other people and allowing us to communicate, talking mostly about digital-mediated ways of communicating, things like emails uh, and text messaging and social media. These are remarkable innovations, but at the same time, I started to myself, which had such a great uh, great promise of bringing us together, were too often coming between us. And so it was this kind of weird paradox that these unprecedentedly powerful communication tools were actually making it seem like, in some cases, they were making our communication worse. Yes, absolutely. I think all of us, myself and all of us who are listening here today, have experienced that and are probably guilty of it from time to time as well. So your book addresses that entire issue, correct? It does, yeah. My my main concern and the way I sometimes think about it is that if you it's roughly analogous, I think, to fast food in America. When fast food first came on the scene in the 70s, uh, there were a lot of reasons why it was great. It was convenient. It cut down the time we needed to uh, prepare food. It freed up people to do more work or do more leisure. It was relatively inexpensive. It tasted pretty good and so on and so forth. And it took a while for us to figure out that fast food all the time has major consequences. And I think something like that is happening now, and we're at the early stages of it. We're just starting to 
virtually, uh, you know, I'm probably like you. Most of the people who you talk to, this isn't this isn't the first time they've thought about this. And, and so there's this dawning awareness that something funny is going on with the way that we're communicating with each other. And I'm concerned that we're kind of at the front leading edge of our awareness that uh, we've been maybe indulging a bit too much in what's fast and what's convenient and we're letting slide some of the more difficult communication skills which also happen to be some of the skills that uh, help us connect to people most powerfully and bring the most meaning to our lives and our interactions. Yes, that's very true and in fact uh, I'm sure you would agree that because we are so tied to these these devices that many times instead of being a convenience, they start controlling us. We can't turn off. We're on constantly, plugged in constantly. And so not only does communication suffer because we're responding too quickly, but we're we're tired of communicating with the you know, at times. And so that in itself contributes to poor communication, that we aren't giving uh, our thoughts as much time to percolate. We we rattle off something in an email that maybe we shouldn't have sent. And I know you're going to address all these today because what you have are ten tips for helping to shake off this counterproductive communication, these behaviors that we've gotten into a habit in a very short time period, uh, and how to get these better results, both in our personal lives and professionally. I mean, I have sat um, in restaurants and watched two people communicate. In fact, I've had the servers come up and say, that group over there, they're they're texting each other and they're sitting there. So we're going to talk about personally and professionally how to counteract those types of behaviors. And I know that one of the first things you say is to take a cue from the pre-wired days. What do you mean by that? Should we all turn off our cell phones? Well, no, you know, I'm uh, I I think there are some lessons that we should pay attention to from uh, I mean, really, these lessons are so, some of these are so simple that, you know, we probably learned them from our grandparents or we learned them you know, early on in school, but what I'm suggesting is that there's three kind of core principles for how we should interact that we seem to lose sight of uh, in the rush of this, the honeymoon of the digital age. And the first one is that I'm recommending that in general we pay attention and that we talk like every sentence matters, listen like every word counts, mm-hmm. and treat every interaction like it's important, and just use those as guiding principles for how we are interacting with other people. And that, that more than anything else, will help put more awareness and more restraint back in our interactions and in our communications, and it will drive down the error rate that's happening. And, and so, you know, it's this error rate that's causing us great trouble because the communication is fundamentally imperfect. And Mm -hmm. what that means is no matter how much training we get, no matter how good we get at shaping a message and so on and so forth, communication is never perfect. And so when you take something fundamentally imperfect and then you 
multiply by a factor of 10 how often you're doing it, you're going to get errors increasing by a factor of 10 also. And the problem is, in addition to being fundamentally imperfect, human communication is also subject to asymmetry. And by that I mean the errors count against us much more than the successes count for us. Or said differently, Kelly, I can't teach you or anybody listening to this interview, I, can, I can't teach anybody how to make a great relationship in five minutes because it doesn't take five minutes. It takes five months and five years. Right. But I can teach you how to ruin one in five seconds. And that, that's the <laughs> I'm laughing asymmetry. It's so true. <laughs> yeah, and so that's what happened. We're in this soup because of two, because of really the thing that we've known since time immemorial. Communication is powerful. Okay, great. I got it. I've known that forever, Tower of Babel, et cetera. But then when you take the fundamental asymmetry of communication, it cannot be perfected. There will always be miscommunication. There will always be a certain amount of errors. It's imperfectible. And then you, by a factor of 10, increase how much we're communicating you remember that we're subject to this asymmetry in our relationships. My concern is we're straining our relationships because the more we communicate imperfectly, the more our errors count against us. And right. so we strain the relationships. And what I'm suggesting with those three overarching principles, uh, the basic mindfulness of communication will help people drive down that error rate, not to zero, but reduce the amount yeah. of interactions that they're having that are actually counterproductive and working against them. Sure. So, so so, slow down and bring some mindfulness to it. Listen like every sentence matters. Talk like every word counts. And act like every interaction is important. So the next thing that you tell people in your book is that you need to lower your hopes or your expectations for your smart devices. What do you mean by that? These things are pretty darn smart. <laughs> yeah. You know, here's what I mean. It's something... Funny, and I'm not the first person to comment on this. Uh, uh, very highly regarded scientist, uh, I believe at MIT, named Sherry Turkle. She brought this to my attention in some of her readings. Uh, I think a book of hers called Alone Together, and she had a series of other books about communication and living in the digital world. And essentially, what she said and what I've uh, added some of my own voice to is what I believe is we're asking too much from our devices and yet not enough from each other. And so when it comes to communication, I've got this great smartphone, and I think and I'm enamored with all of the things that it can do, and it's almost at the expense of how much in an old-school manner I can do if I just hang up and walk over to the person, uh, you know, <laughs> sitting next to me and talk. Yes. And and so, you know, and the, a funny example of this is if you think about think about when we send a text message or an email and it gets totally mangled, right? And so we right. rush it, and we and we just type it into whatever to a client, to our wife, whatever, whoever you're sending it to, and it gets mangled and it gets misconstrued and it causes. Uh, you know, a little, a little tiff, a little issue. 
And as soon as we realize that that email or that text has done that, most of us, you know, immediately try to remediate that in the most human-to-human way we can. You know, we try to go right to the client or right to our wife and and get away from the device and have a richer type of interaction. And so my comment about uh, expecting less from our devices is we shouldn't focus so much on look at all the bandwidth, so to speak, that this device can process when, in fact, there's nothing as bandwidth rich as two people sitting to each other trying to work through something. Right. That's very true. And and uh, a lot of times, uh, too, people don't abandon the smartphone after some kind of a a misunderstanding, and they continue. I've had, I've seen this happen where they'll continue to try to communicate through the email. It just gets worse and worse and worse because email and texting, in particular, they're besides sometimes responding too fast. Um, the other thing that can happen is because you're trying to be brief and move on to other things, the tone comes across as uh, stilted, uh, cr- cranky. Uh, too short, and you, that's not what the intention was at all. You're just trying to get through to the next email, and yet your response was perceived. Somebody perceives that you're mad at them, that you're upset with them, and and so yes, uh, so many unintended consequences of the emails and, and the and the text messages and so forth. So very good advice there. Now, one, yeah, and one thing, thing I would say, funny. Kelly, Kelly, is you're you're something you said that's exactly it's right on the money is. We approach our email, you know, we like, we're the duct tape species, right? We like to get things done. And so we see an inbox with 50 things or whatever the number, and we want to crank them out. And so what's happened is we've started approaching communication like something we do. But in fact, this is the way we make our life. This isn't a task list. We make yes. our life through our communication, and we don't just, oh, well, I'm just going to crank it out, you know? <laughs> that is a great, great point. That's a great point. Uh, the next thing that you talk about in your book is lose your friends. Now, in this age of social media where the number of friends that you have on, especially in the business world, the number of friends that you have on your Facebook page, the number of uh, or the number of likes you have, the number of connections you have through LinkedIn, the uh, number of followers on Twitter, you know, you can get your message out to your customers, your clients, and that's seen as a good thing. You're saying something, again, you, you already you already gave us the caveat that some of this is going to be counterintuitive advice, but lose your friends. Yes. Let me tell you where this came from. Many years ago, I, I was born and raised in Texas, and I had the good fortune of uh, being able to uh, attend the United States Military Academy uh, at West Point. And so I went from Texas to West Point. And, you know, for a Texas boy, the New York winters were, you know, they were pretty rough. And uh, the first year at West Point isn't isn't widely known as a walk in the park. And so, no. <laughs> you know, it it, it was a rough uh, rough uptake to military living, to the New York winters and so forth. And when I came home from my first break at the uh, holiday vacation, you know, uh, in between December and January, that semester break from West Point, mm-hmm. 
I found myself spending an inordinate amount of time with very kind of friends who I barely knew, uh, people who I hadn't been that close to before, and essentially I ate up my entire vacation spending time with people who weren't all that important to me. Mm-hmm. And when I went back to West Point, I realized that, I mean, I'd made basically a strategic error. At the time in my life when I needed my stabilizing closest relationships the most, I wasn't paying them any attention. And it fortunately, all of this was happening in the pre-Internet era. And I, I realized, look, I need to... I need to prioritize what I'm doing. These core relationships in my life, I have to keep them straight because yes. these are the people I lean on. These are the people who are there for me. These are the people who I can't replace these people. My number of aunts <laughs> and uncles, it's fixed and shrinking. And, you right. know, I, I can't snap my finger and replace a best friend from middle school and so forth because anybody I replace him or her with is they're not going to have been there with me 20 years ago, much less yesterday. And so I realized it was simple, but I realized I need to prioritize people to create a simple structure because I needed simple at that point in my life. I was <laughs> contending with enough between, you know, the academics, the athletic department, and all the upperclassmen at West Point. Look, I had my hands full, and so I came up with this image of a pyramid and four ways of prioritizing who goes where. And I talk more at length about that in the book. But basically, what I when I say lose your friends, quote, unquote, lose your mm-hmm. friends, what I mean is these core relationships in your life, most important romantic relationship, parents, siblings, key business client or two, key work colleague or two, those people, these are your core relationships. Do not starve them of time and attention because we're jacking around with, you know, you know, follower X here on my, you know, on my business Facebook page and this person who I find myself scrolling through there memorial day pictures and i you know i haven't haven't thought about this person since seventh grade right 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 yeah no and and so yes you do go into this more in your book and i believe you have four levels that you talk about and uh we'll talk about where you can get your book in just a minute so that people who are interested can can look that up in more detail so so the next piece of advice that you give and we've, we've actually discussed this just a little bit is to stop talking and think for a minute What's the value of that? So the value of that is it reintroduces restraint. And so restraint is what enabled us. And I'm, I'm obviously I'm simplifying a great deal of human history, but restraint yes. is what enabled us to stop clubbing each other and start living <laughs> together in larger and larger groups. It's It's the precursor to civilized, living across a whole host of fronts, you know, restraint of desires and so forth and so on. But I'm focused on restraint in communication, which is the ability to not talk when you absolutely feel compelled to say what's right on the tip of your tongue. Because it's a weird quirk 
a lot of our new digital tools that have proliferated in the last 15 years encourage self-expression. And yes. I'm okay with self-expression as long as there's one word in front of it, and that's thoughtful. And mm -hmm. thoughtful self-expression, you need restraint for that. And so when I say stop talking, what I mean is, and, and let me say this two ways because I think it, I think it uh, is worth noting. You know, I've spent decades studying communication. I have a PhD in this stuff. I do this for a living. I talk with uh, business owners and CEOs and, and, you know, I talk with my friends and family all the time. And usually when they're in a jam, you know, they call old Jeff and say, okay, Mr. Communication Man, tell me what I should do. <laughs> and and it, the first thing that I note is, you know, what – please call me before you step in it next time. <laughs> we can do so much more. And it leads me to, you know, my first point, which is it's if you want to improve your communication, the fastest way to improve your communication is stop talking because it is the errors. It is the impulsive words at the tip of our tongue. It is the inability to not make that comment to a colleague or not say, something to a client about a competitor and so forth and so on. It's that restraint that will help drive down the error rate and more philosophically, it reintroduces civilized communication. And when two people can talk in a way that's characterized by mutual restraint, you can talk about anything. We could talk about any topic, Kelly, you and I. And as long as we were both being restrained a little bit in what we were saying, and then if something got off track, as long as we were trying to bring it back down and get back to the conversation, if we had mutual restraint, there's nothing that we couldn't talk about. Right. And well, and, and respect goes along with that, too, I, I would think. So speaking of restraint, though, that leads us right into your next piece of advice, which is don't always be yourself. And again, counterintuitive, it would seem, because we get drilled into our heads. You need to be yourself. You need to be yourself. Don't try to act like someone you're not. And so here you're talking about don't always be yourself. And I think it has something to do with the restraint issue you were yeah. talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So restraint and containment go hand in hand. They're the two most important communication skills. And so we talked before earlier in the conversation about a kind of uh, a 30,000-foot view of the philosophical way of improving your communication is to – once again, start listening like every sentence matters, talk like every word counts, and act like every interaction is important. That's the 30,000-foot view. If you just remember that, uh, you'll, probably, you'll probably be able to improve the way that you're interacting in the business and professional life. Now, dropping down from the clouds into uh, where the rubber meets the road, there are two skills that are essential to build. The first is restraint, and you build it like a muscle. And the way you build restraint is you practice not saying the things on the tip of your tongue. And when you do say them, 
you stop when you have a minute and you roll through that in your head. And I talk about other ways about building the restraint muscle, but the second piece of this is containment, which is when mm-hmm. something goes awry in a conversation, you be the person to say, it ends here. It doesn't get any worse than this. I'm not going to let it escalate because all relationship, all relational damage happens when conversations escalate or said differently. As long as we're having that civilized discussion characterized by mutual restraint, we will never damage our relationships. And so my advice to not be yourself come from the practical experience of people calling me and whenever they tell me I was just trying to be authentic or I just wanted to be myself, the next thing they start, the next thing they describe is all of the damage that that caused because mm-hmm. it's all too often used as an excuse to do whatever you want to say whatever you want, in other words, to not speak with restraint, to go ahead and continue escalating and adding fuel to a conversation that's already spiraling out of control. And so Mm -hmm. my advice to not be yourself is that person inside of you that wants to react immediately and, 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 and contribute to a damaging conversation instead of being the one who says it ends here and stop it. Don't be that person. Be the person okay. who contains the damage and restrains those words, and you will reintroduce you'll reintroduce civilized communication to many of your interactions. Okay. And, and shifting just a little bit here, we've talked a lot about restraint. We've talked a lot about uh, sending off messages in a hurry. One of the other things that you talk about is simply asking questions and how questions uh, can damage. And, and a lot of times people are just asking questions because they're curious or, or you know, it's, it's a very innocent question, but even questions are often perceived improperly or incorrectly. So, so what contributes to the miscommunication in questions, and how can we avoid that? Okay. All right, that's a great question, uh, and so I should say that since we're talking about questions. That's a great one, and what makes it great is also the fact that it's kind of unusual. Uh, it, it, many of our questions are uh, – so questions suffer from a lot of problems. Let me just enumerate a few. The first is that a lot of our questions are rushed, and so questions aren't the same as statements. In statements, in a conversation, okay, so we have a conversation, it kind of gets into a flow, you say something, I say something, and so on and so forth. But a question is like a stop sign that I have to read and then I have to decide which way I'm going to go. And so questions are very in communication, but we don't treat them like they are. We just treat them like, well, no big deal. I just switched out this period with this uh, question mark. (laughs) And so we don't spend the time that we should to think through them. And look, I'm not suggesting that we spend all this huge amount of time preparing for all of our conversations, uh, although I will say we should prepare for the important ones, which is yes. amazing to me in my line of work. I mean, this is a side note, but I have this brief little tangent in our discussion. It's amazing to me in my line of work how often people stumble into 
the most important conversations of their life, the conversations with the boss that changes the trajectory of a career, the conversation with the client that shuts down an enormous project, the conversation with a spouse or a partner that, that ends or fundamentally alters a relationship, and we just have them and stumble into them when we knew that they were coming. We knew something was wrong in the relationship. We knew something was going on with the client, something was going on with our boss and so forth. And so that's a broader communication uh, ill that I discuss in the book. But here's the problem with questions, Kelly. We don't pay enough attention to them. When they enter conversations, they're extremely powerful because people feel compelled to actually answer them. And yeah. so there's a variety of errors that happen. Here's a few enumerated. Number one, we don't pay enough attention to them, which I've already talked about. Number two, some of our questions are really just criticisms in disguise, and we're not fooling anybody when we say, you know, what you're, you know, are you still renting? Look, that doesn't fool anybody. What that means, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and, right, right. And, and so there's criticisms in disguise for questions. A third type of uh, error with questions is that. Sometimes in the way that we formulate it, we heavily restrict what the other person is going to say. And so they're much more closed than open, and it shuts down communication. And then the fourth major way that questions uh, cause trouble in conversations is that we use them rhetorically or said, more, said in the Queen's English, we ask questions when we really don't want answers. And yes. so we're using them as a device to express our views, and that drives people nuts because when you ask a question, they want to answer. If you ask your partner, you know, oh, why do I put up with this? Don't be surprised if they give an answer because you meant it rhetorically, but questions people are trained to answer, and they don't like feeling like they can't actually respond in the way that they want to. And so those are some of the problems with questions. And basically, my view, after spending a lot of time thinking about the things that we do very well in our communication and things that we don't, is that questions are the questions are a communication tool. They're very powerful, but they're widely misused. And most of us are terrible questioners. And with just a few practical tools, and, you know, I talk about some of those in the book, but I've just summarized them here, we can improve the way that we ask our questions, and that will in turn improve our conversations. Okay. Uh, good advice there. Now, one of the other things that you talk about is our tendency to want to solve every problem right now. We get a piece of communication, uh, however it's delivered, we want to respond right away. There's there's just something urgent about it. Used to in the old days, when you get a letter in the mail, it would take three days to get there from to get to you from the original sender. So that person has, you know, been silent for three days, and you get it. And by the time you you get around to writing a response and getting it in the mail, and you, another few days elapses, and so there's that time to ponder. And now we get an email like it's just there's like a beacon calling you, pay attention to me, you need to respond. And so you say, no, you don't have to solve every problem. You don't have to solve it right now. So talk to us a little bit about that. 
Yes. Uh, you know, I'm, I must say that, uh, you know, there used to be, when I was growing up, a commercial for a the hair club for men. And, and it, the tagline at the end was, you know, I'm not just the spokesperson. Uh, I'm Or I, I'm not just the spokesperson. I'm also a member or something like that. And at the end, this guy with a full head of hair puts up a picture of him with a bald head. And so, <laughs> and so I should... I should hurry to say, you know, I'm I'm thinking about all these things, but not from some detached position where they aren't impacting me. All of these things impact me as well. So let me answer this question personally. Every night before I go to bed, I think through what's the most important things I need to do for my business. And so I've got these client projects going on, and here's the critical things here. I've got this thing going with the book, and I need to do these two items here. I've got this project that I'm trying to work up in business development over here. And so I delineate, I've got a full day tomorrow, and I want to, in order, tackle this thing, a one, two, three, let's say. These are, I know these are the most important things in my professional life, and I've got a full day tomorrow to tackle them. And so I go to bed. I sleep great, just like a baby. And then I wake up in the morning, and it's it, the hardest part of the day is how long can I go without checking email or looking at my smartphone, right? <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> and as soon as... As soon as I take a look at the old email, it's like a nuclear bomb goes off on my priorities. And the the Neanderthal or the the whack-a-mole Jeff who just wants to knock stuff out, right? Like my ancestors, Mm -hmm. our ancestors, we just wanted to, you know, I want to just knock stuff out. The cave person inside of me, act, act, do, do, act, act. And so here's this blinking, you know, this device that's engineered to fulfill those uh, impulsive type cravings, and it's blinking at me, telling me 17 messages. And I know that if I can only just get those 17 down to zero, I'll get some kind of feel good inside, right? (laughs) Sure. None of these 17 are even remotely connected to the big five strategic things that I knew last night that I needed to do. And mm-hmm. in my I, – I, so I battle this as well in my, in my own life, but – and, and, you know, there's a lot of strategies for battling this that uh, many of your listeners will know. I also put some in the book. But I also see this when I go and do my work in companies and try to help CEOs improve their effectiveness and try to help with organizational problems is that every day at 8 o'clock, everybody's looking at a screen. And we're knocking out little bitty tasks in an organization, but meanwhile – the actual ship of the organization, so to speak, is running into the shoals. And, you know, we're sending a lot of emails, but we're not adjusting the course to keep the ship Mm -hmm. out of the shoals. And so that's the prioritization piece that that I think is many of us are battling. And it's a quirk of the digital age. 
Right. We have two more pieces to cover here, and this is interesting. The next thing you advise is to let difficult people win. What do you mean by that? That's right. Look, we. so let me say a few things about difficult people. The first is when I say difficult people, I'm not talking about the people who are having a bad day. That's just a regular person having a bad day, and I'm not – talking about the people who are uh, have a particular issue that bothers them. That's just their flashpoint. I'm talking about people in your life who are pervasively pervasively stubborn, a client that's moody all of the time, an aunt or an uncle who is always a downer or whatever, but it, mm-hmm. all the time and to everyone. And so that's a difficult person. And so the good news is the vast majority of difficult people in your life, you are already heavily restricting your interaction with them, whether they're your uncles and aunts or whether they're people at work. I mean, these people, people, and so this is, you know, and I, as you mentioned at the beginning, look, I have a nonprofit because I see what's happening. In, in my nonprofit, I work with the people who are getting isolated. Difficult communicators, they have a communication problem. They're too critical. And it kills, it kills them, and it, it uh, dismantles most of their core relationships. And so I try to help those folks because what happens is everybody isolates difficult people, and what I'm suggesting is we've already done that. The vast majority of difficult people in our life, we've already kind of, uh, you know, it's, it seems, in some ways it seems callous to say, but basically we punish people who have pervasive communication problems by expunging them from our life. The only people who remain are the difficult people who you can't expunge. And so it's your, it's apparent. It's a it's a key relative. It's a client that right now you actually can't live without, or it's a boss and you don't right now have the ability to move around in that job in your job. And so, when you have these difficult people in your life, I'm suggesting that the very first step is to let them win more often. Let them more often be themselves instead of our default, which is I see that critical person and I'm going to try to make them less critical, or I see that uh, stubborn to try to make them change their mind. That's crazy because they are pervasively like this across multiple situations with multiple people. Do not take it as your burden to try to change that person. (laughs) Sure. Said, have very modest aims for what you're trying to accomplish, and I talk about other steps in the book. But basically, I'm giving your listeners dispensation, and anybody who reads the book, if there is somebody who everybody knows to be wildly difficult with everyone else, stop it personally because it's not personal. They're doing it to everybody. Let them be that way. Have more modest aims. It will keep you out of the insane asylum. <laughs> well, and, and the next piece of advice that you give is to respond with weakness. And it sounds to me like it goes broader than what you just described, but it goes hand in hand with letting other people win. What, what do you mean by respond with weakness? 
Well, so conversations are subject to a matching or a reciprocity, whatever. There's a number of uh, psychological forces, but I summarize them all by saying we basically match the intensity level of the other person. And so if somebody mm-hmm. comes in and they're real agitated, think of a knob that goes from zero to ten. And if they're real mm-hmm. agitated and upset on a level nine, we jump right in and we match that. And and then this conversation has this high intensity where a lot of damage happens. And in so doing, we give up the power of matching to work for us. And so respond with weakness means simply this. When somebody comes at you on a very high volume, high agitation level, highly frustrated or what have you, they're volume nine. Everything inside you, that same caveman who's killing you because all he wants to do is check email and say what's on the tip of his tongue like we talked about before. Your same caveman is going to want to get the club and start clubbing at volume level nine. But instead, do not relinquish the power of matching to go up. Instead, stick at a level three or four. Be low key. Let let the power of matching work for you, and I'm telling you, more times than not, you'll be able to bring the volume of that conversation. In so doing, you'll be re- that. so that's a type of containment, and mm-hmm. that will help bring that mutual restraint, a.k.a. civilized communication, back to the in- interaction, and it'll get it out of the danger zone. And one point that I should mention because it's important in the respond with weakness. I'm absolutely not suggesting that you take a lot of crap from people constantly. But the people who love us the most and care the most about us have bad days, and they come at us on volume nine, and we should give them a couple breaks and bring it down and let that conversation come down. If you have somebody in your life who's constantly coming at you at a intensity level that's way too high, that's not an issue that can be treated with weakness. In in right. that instance, that's probably verbal aggression or the street name for that is bullying. It's mm-hmm. a signal of an asymmetric relationship that's possibly uh it's let's just say it's it's very lopsided and deformed. And uh, and there's a sequence I talk in there about how you handle those type of situations. Okay. But that's not the rule. That is the exception. Most mm-hmm. of the time, we can respond with weakness and restraint and a gentle touch, and we will absolutely walk people off the ledge and prevent our core underlying relationships the few, there's 10, 11, or so forth relationships in our life. This composes 80 or 90% of our quality of life. We cannot afford for them to take on major damage. They have to be protected. We can work at the problems in them once we've protected them from this type of asymmetrical damage that expedient, quick, and thoughtless communication can so easily lead to. Sure. Now, the the last point that you cover in your book is uh, you give people permission to be boring. And you say it's not a bad thing. Why? Why isn't being boring a bad thing? We hear 
so much about in order to cut through the clutter, we have to be exciting, we have to grab people's attention. But you're saying, no, it's okay to be boring. <laughs> yeah. Kelly, I, I appreciate these questions. As somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about questions, uh, I, <laughs> I really uh, I recognize and appreciate the uh, these great questions. And so thanks very much. So let me answer it. Uh, let me answer it like this. Forget about exciting conversations. I get calls all the time to help people uh, repair the damage from exciting conversations. What in plain old, I mean, it's so, so much of our life and our relationships, it's doesn't, it's not flashy. I show right. up, I treat someone with kindness, I advance the ball on a project, I say what I'm going to do for this client, and then I turn around and I do it. These slow and steady things, this this is how we build our relationships, and this is how we build our life. I have a an equation, so to speak, that I use in my book. Good communication equals good relationships equals good life. And it is the day-to-day showing up, being thoughtful, restraining yourself, containing conversations that go awry, sitting on your inner caveman or cavewoman and letting the more thoughtful person inside talk. It's doing those things that's going to lead to good conversations that after the other add up to create the kind of relationships that we want, the strong, fulfilling, resilient relationships that are at the core of our dreams and that have everything to do with our overall quality of life. Good communication equals good relationship equals good life, and we build them one conversation at a time. Yes, well well said. And you have covered an awful lot of ground here today. You cover even more ground in your book, Stop Talking, Start Communicating. If any of our listeners would like to get a copy of the book, how would they do that? And also, if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you to continue this conversation, how would they do that? Okay, thanks. Those are both great questions. The book is uh, published by McGraw-Hill, and it's available at all of the major online retailers and in many, maybe most bookstores. And so it's on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. It'll be in uh, Barnes & Noble. It's on uh, IndieBound. It's it's widely available online. Just punch in, stop talking, stop, start communicating. Uh, you can also reach me through my website, tumlin.com, that's T-U-M-L-I-N.com, or my email, uh, although, as I've said earlier today, uh, I try not to answer it too early in the morning. So <laughs> it may be much later before I respond, but I will get back to you. My email is jeff, G-E-O-F-F, at tumlin.com. And, again, Kelly, I sure do appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Uh, You asked some great questions, and I'm grateful for the time that you spent. 
Very, very valuable information, and we appreciate you stopping by today to talk with us. If any of you would like other resources for growing your businesses, be sure to check out IThinkBigger.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at IThinkBigger. You can like our Facebook page at Thinking Bigger Business Media, and you can find email for all of our staff on our website at IThinkBigger.com if you have a question or if you have a suggestion. Thanks for tuning in today. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.